Welcome to the August 25th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we'll discuss the efficacy of rivaroxaban as antithrombotic prophylaxis after laparoscopic surgery for colorectal cancer. Learn more about the association between genomic variants and survival outcomes after hematopoietic cell transplantation in severe aplastic anemia. And discuss the long-term safety and efficacy of fixed-duration venetoclax plus rituximab in relapsed refractory CLL. Our first blood article is entitled Rivaroxaban versus Placebo for Extended Antithrombotic Prophylaxis After Laparoscopic Surgery for Colorectal Cancer by Cecilia Beccatini from the University of Perugia in Italy and colleagues. The incidence of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, and fatal pulmonary embolism is about two to three times higher after cancer surgery than non-cancer surgery. Studies to date have shown that, compared to a one-week course, extension of antithrombotic prophylaxis to four weeks after surgery reduces the incidence of DVT and pulmonary embolism. Based on these findings, international guidelines currently recommend a four-week prophylactic course with low molecular weight heparin after open major abdominal or pelvic surgery for cancer. Extended prophylaxis is also recommended after laparoscopic surgery for cancer based on the findings from a pilot-randomized open-label study that showed reduced ultrasound-detected VTE at three months after laparoscopic surgery for colorectal cancer. Direct oral anticoagulants have been established as safe and effective antithrombotic prophylaxis after major orthopedic surgery. However, no data is available about their effectiveness following cancer surgery. The authors hypothesized that an oral agent given at fixed doses at discharge could improve the effects of extended prophylaxis. Therefore, the aim of their current study was to evaluate the safety and efficacy of extended prophylaxis for VTE with rivaroxaban after laparoscopic surgery for colorectal cancer in patients who already received prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin. The PROLAPSE-2 trial enrolled a total of 641 patients with colorectal cancer from May 2017 through June 2021 across many medical centers in Europe. Overall, 160, or 28.1%, of patients underwent surgery for rectal cancer. And of these 160, 84 were randomized to placebo and 74 to 10 milligrams of rivaroxaban once daily. The patients were started on rivaroxaban or placebo within 7 plus or minus 2 days of surgery, and rivaroxaban was continued for 3 additional weeks to complete a 4-week period of antithrombotic prophylaxis. Prior to this, all patients received prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin within 12 to 24 hours of surgery. The primary study outcome was the sum of VTE-related death, symptomatic objectively confirmed VTE, or asymptomatic ultrasonography-confirmed DVT four weeks after surgery. Major bleeding, defined according to the criteria of the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, was the primary safety outcome. The mean time duration for randomization to primary outcome assessment was 24 days in the rivaroxaban arm compared to 23 days in the placebo arm. 
A primary study outcome event was reported in 11 of 282, or 3.9% of patients in the placebo arm, compared to only 3 of 287, or 1% of patients in the rivaroxaban arm. Secondary efficacy outcomes, which included symptomatic objectively confirmed VTE, asymptomatic ultrasonography detected DVT, and or major bleeding and or death within 90 days from surgery, were reported in 6 or 2.1% of patients on rivaroxaban and in 12 or 4.2% of patients on placebo. Major bleeding occurred in only two patients in the rivaroxaban arm and none of the patients in the placebo arm. In both patients who experienced bleeding, bleeding was non-fatal and occurred at the surgical site. Non-major bleeding was reported in three patients on rivaroxaban and five patients on placebo during the four-week treatment period. Both symptomatic DVT and proximal DVT were more commonly reported in placebo-treated patients compared to those on rivaroxaban. The study authors concluded that rivaroxaban was more effective than placebo as extended prophylaxis for VTE in patients who underwent laparoscopic surgery for colorectal cancer. Importantly, the study drug did not cause an increase in major bleeding. In an accompanying commentary, Gerald Soff from the University of Miami Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center in Florida notes the findings from Prolapse 2 established that extending anticoagulation prophylaxis from 7 to 28 days for patients undergoing laparoscopic surgery for colorectal cancer reduces the relative risk of VTE by approximately 75% with a reassuring safety signal. Furthermore, the study found that rivaroxaban may be used after the first week of postoperative anticoagulation. Indeed, it appears to be safe and effective in this patient group, which is at an increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeding. Soft cautioned that when interpreting the results, one should remember that the study excluded patients at increased risk of bleeding and those with cerebral metastases and renal or liver dysfunction. The study also excluded patients with an underlying indication for anticoagulation, since extended prophylaxis in such settings may not be sufficient. With these caveats, the oral administration of rivaroxaban provides an opportunity to make extended prophylaxis easier after laparoscopic surgery in cancer patients. Next up, we'll discuss the article entitled, Genetic Testing in Severe Aplastic Anemia is Required for Optimal Hematopoietic Cell Transplant Outcomes by Lisa McReynolds from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. Severe aplastic anemia, or SAA, is a rare acquired form of immune-mediated bone marrow failure, occurring at a rate of about 2 to 3 cases per million. Exposure to certain medications and chemicals has been associated with increased risk of acquiring SAA in a small percentage of patients. In other cases, certain genetic variants in the HLA locus have been identified as risk factors, and in approximately 8 to 15% of patients, somatic loss of the HLA region on chromosome 6 has been found. Hematopoietic cell transplant, or HCT is the recommended first-line therapy for patients with acquired SAA who are younger than age 40 and have a matched sibling donor. HCT is also the recommended second-line therapy for older patients with acquired disease or those without a suitable related donor. The three-year survival rate for patients who have undergone HCT in the U.S. between 2013 and 2015 is high, 90% for matched sibling donors and 76% for unrelated donors, respectively. 
Furthermore, HCT remains a treatment option for patients with inherited bone marrow failure syndromes, or IBMFS, who develop severe bone marrow failure and is the only treatment which can potentially prevent the development of myelodysplastic syndrome, or acute myeloid leukemia in these cases. In part due to phenotypic heterogeneity, patients with SAA may have an unrecognized IBMFS. Therefore, the goal of the current study was to analyze germline variants in IBMFS-associated genes in a large cohort of patients who underwent HCT for acquired SAA and to evaluate their association with transplant outcomes. The study included 732 patients who underwent HCT for SAA between 1989 and 2015 and had a blood sample available for whole exome analysis. 636 patients received unrelated, and 96 patients received matched, related transplants. Genomic analysis focused on 104 genes known to be associated with IBMFS across four major disease pathways, hematopoiesis, ribosome biology, telomere biology, and DNA damage response. Patients with pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants fitting known disease hereditary patterns were classified as unrecognized IBMFS. Patients with a single pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant in an autosomal recessive gene, or females with an X-linked recessive pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant were classified as carriers. The study identified 113 pathogenic or likely pathogenic single nucleotide variants, or small insertions deletions, and 10 copy number variants across 42 genes analyzed in 121 patients. 91, or 12.4% of patients, had 105 in silico predicted deleterious variants of uncertain significance. 48 of 732, or 6.6% of SAA patients, had an unrecognized IBMFS, and 73, or 10%, were identified as carriers. Of the 48 patients with unrecognized IBMFS, 33% were adults, with only three patients with identified mutations being over the age of 40. SAA patients who had genetic evidence of previously unrecognized IBMFS exhibited worse survival, irrespective of myeloablative or reduced intensity conditioning, or donor relationship. The increased mortality was attributed to organ failure, with the highest rates observed in patients with mutations in DNA damage response genes followed by telomere biology genes. Patients who were only carriers of pathogenic variants experienced outcomes similar to those of presumed acquired cases. In the no-variant group, graft-versus-host disease was the most common cause of death. In an accompanying commentary, Amy Desern from the Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore notes that the findings by McReynolds and collaborators confirm that baseline assessment for an unrecognized IBMFS is the minimum mandatory workup prior to transplant for SAA. She adds that the study strengthens the case for more comprehensive germline testing, such as whole exome sequencing in all SAA patients under 40, since 45 of the 48 identified mutations were in this age range. Desern additionally highlights that during the course of the study, there were increasing percentages of unrecognized IBMF cases in the time interval from 1989 to 2010 and 2011 to 2015. This could reflect increasing awareness of the need to diagnose inherited predisposition. This also coincides with increased use of functional tests, such as peripheral blood lymphocyte telomere length measurement by Flowfish and chromosome breakage with dye epoxybutane to rule out a short telomere syndrome or Fanconi anemia. 
However, the authors did not have the ability to do paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH, testing on samples. Even though it is known that the presence of PNH clones represents a marker of acquired AA and can be assayed by flow cytometry. Since genetic testing is costly and not readily accessible, she suggests that the combination of PNH by flow and functional testing could be a cost-effective initial step. In particular, the study findings suggest that adults over the age of 40 with negative function testing and a PNH clone may not require an additional genetic workup. Desern is optimistic that comprehensive germline genetic testing for younger patients with a diagnosis of aplastic anemia will allow the selection of personalized therapies to optimize patient outcomes. This is particularly relevant to patients with short telomere syndromes and Fanconi anemia, who must receive a less intensive HCT conditioning regimen to avoid morbidity and mortality from organ toxicity. In such patients, preparative regimens that even further attenuate conditioning will be important. Germline genetic testing of patients to rule out an IBMFS should also limit the potential harm and lack of benefit from using immunosuppressive therapy in these individuals. In turn, this will help tailor the appropriate use of transplant to improve outcomes in all SAA patients. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled Enduring Undetectable MRD and Updated Outcomes in Relapsed Refractory CLL After Fixed-Duration Venetoclax Rituximab by John Seymour from the Peter McCollum Cancer Center and Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia and colleagues. Achievement of undetectable disease after time-limited therapy for CLL is associated with improved progression-free survival and overall survival and is an important goal of therapy. Three prognostic factors that can negatively influence treatment response in CLL include unmutated immunoglobulin heavy-chain gene status, deletion in chromosome 17p or DEL17p, and genomic complexity defined as the presence of three or more copy number alterations. Up to 80% of DEL17P cases also harbor a mutation in TP53, which encodes the tumor suppressor protein P53 that plays a critical role in maintaining genomic integrity. TP53 occurring without the presence of DEL17P is also associated with adverse outcomes. BCL2 is an anti-apoptotic protein and key regulator of the intrinsic apoptotic pathway that is constitutively overexpressed in CLL. Venetoclax is a highly selective BCL2 inhibitor with demonstrated effectiveness in patients with relapsed refractory CLL. High response rates to venetoclax have been observed in CLL patients harboring DEL17P, independent of TP53 mutations. The Phase 3 Murano trial compared the safety and efficacy of time-limited therapy with venetoclax plus rituximab versus bendamustine plus rituximab in patients with relapsed refractory CLL. 389 patients were enrolled from March 2014 through September 2015 across 109 sites in 20 countries. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive venetoclax for up to two years in combination with rituximab in the first six months, or a combination of bendamustine plus rituximab for six months. Median patient age was 65 years, and 74% of study patients were men. Investigator-assessed progression-free survival served as the primary endpoint, defined as the time from randomization to occurrence of progressive disease or death. Peripheral Blood Minimal Residual Disease, or MRD, status served as the secondary endpoint. 
Additional secondary endpoints included overall survival, time to next treatment, complete and partial response rates, and safety assessments. In 2018, a primary analysis from Murano reported significantly longer progression-free survival with venetoclax plus rituximab, with benefit observed in all analyzed subgroups, including patients with unmutated immunoglobulin heavy-chain gene or DEL17P or mutated TP53. Furthermore, progression-free survival and overall survival benefits were sustained at three and four years of follow-up. Moreover, undetectable MRD was observed in peripheral blood at higher rates in the venetoclax rituximab arm than in the bendamustine rituximab arm at the end of combination treatment. In the current study, the authors report on the five-year follow-up results from this trial. At five-year follow-up, survival benefits were sustained with a median progression-free survival of 53.6 months in the venetoclax rituximab arm compared to 17 months in the bendamustine rituximab arm and a five-year overall survival of 82.1% and 62.2%, respectively. Moreover, venetoclax plus rituximab was superior to bendamustine plus rituximab, irrespective of cytogenetic subgroup. The 83 venetoclax plus rituximab-treated patients who had undetectable MRD at the end of treatment exhibited superior overall survival compared to the 12 patients with high MRD values. The three-year post-end-of-treatment survival rates were 95.3% versus 72.9%, respectively, in these two groups. In patients with undetectable MRD at end-of-treatment, the median time to MRD conversion was 19.4 months. Of the 47 patients with documented MRD conversion, 19 patients developed progressive disease with a median time from conversion to progressive disease of 25.2 months. Moreover, patients treated with venetoclax plus rituximab had a slower MRD median doubling time post-end of treatment compared to patients treated with bendamustine rituximab, namely 93 versus 53 days. Interestingly, retreatment with a venetoclax-based regimen or Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor for patients with progressive disease led to high response rates in individuals previously treated with venetoclax plus rituximab. No new safety signals were identified with this extended follow-up. In an accompanying commentary, Adam Katai and Jennifer Woyak from The Ohio State University James Comprehensive Cancer Center in Columbus note that the study by Seymour and colleagues confirms deep and durable responses to venetoclax plus rituximab in patients with relapsed refractory CLL. In addition, the findings reaffirm the use of MRD testing as a surrogate for survival in patients with relapsed refractory disease treated with venetoclax plus rituximab. Katai and Woyak note that only eight study subjects were previously treated with a Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor. This is not surprising given the era in which the trial was initiated, but it does limit the ability to generalize the conclusions to patients treated with these agents. The use of ibrutinib and venetoclax plus obinutuzumab has become more widespread in the frontline setting. And, therefore, further research is needed to determine the efficacy of venetoclax plus rituximab after such therapies. Kitai and Woyak note additional important questions that remain unanswered. These include, what is the best way to test for MRD? And what is the optimal cutoff point for MRD assessment? To date, both flow cytometry and next-generation sequencing have been successfully used in clinical trials with an evaluation depth of less than or equal to 1 times 10 to the negative fourth. But additional research is needed to determine how deep to test, especially when MRD assessment is used to guide treatment decisions. 
For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.